Welcome to Reclaiming the Faith with Phil Baker, a podcast with a mission to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us today. You can find links to all of Phil's resources at philsbaker.com. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen today and take a moment to share this podcast with your friends. Now, here's Phil. Hey, y'all, this is episode 110 of Reclaiming the Faith. In this episode, I get to interview Dr. Leighton Flowers of the Soteriology 101 YouTube channel. We discuss what led him to start that channel, and we also discuss how a distorted view of the sovereignty of God can lead us to many other unbiblical beliefs and practices. It was such a blessing to be able to speak with Dr. Flowers on this subject, so please go check out his Soteriology 101 website and his Soteriology 101 YouTube channel. Become a subscriber and hit that bell if you haven't done so already. If you're blessed by this episode, please consider leaving a positive rating and review on my iTunes channel, Reclaiming the Faith. Also, if you want to become a Patreon supporter, uh, please check out my Patreon page, patreon.com slash philsbaker, where you'll get extra content there for $5 or more a month. Also, I am blessed to be a part of Omega Frequency. Check out the two YouTube channels, Omega Frequency Live and Omega Frequency, where you can find all of that content. And if you're not a subscriber, please go hit the subscribe buttons. Just a quick update on the two projects I have going. My book, Faithful Witness, is almost complete. So look for a release in either late September or early October. And the same can be said for my uh, Genesis EP, the five-song EP I've been doing. So uh, yeah, I'm real excited about both of those. Be on the lookout, and I'll make some announcements about that here in the near future. Okay, well, without any further ado, let's get on to my interview with Dr. Layton Flowers. Dr. Layton Flowers, thank you so much for uh, coming on the program today. Really appreciate you taking the time. It's my honor, Phil. Thank you for having me. Yes, sir. Well, uh, for those who don't know you, will you tell us a little bit about how you came to know Jesus? Sure. I, I was raised in a Christian home. Uh, my dad was the youth pastor uh, of the church that I grew up in. And so I was that little brat kid uh, going to all the disciple mouths and the youth camp events. And, uh, you know, all the teenage boys would carry me around on, on the shoulder like I was their mascot. And uh, all the, the girls, the high school girls would kiss me on the cheek and have me sit on their lap during the worship service. It was a, it was a, it was a tough life, man. It was really rough. Uh, I, I wouldn't trade my Christian upbringing for anything in the world. Um, but I, I was around the church and the things of God since I can remember. And, um, and though I had obviously some struggles that I, that I give in my own testimony about dealing with doubt and, you know, whenever you talk about something being commonplace, you can also become complacent. And so when something uh, like us church brats, those are raised in the church, uh, things of God can become commonplace. And so the, the, the risk there is to become complacent in your faith because you're surrounded by uh, the things of God and the things of the faith. And, and so I was raised in understanding and knowing the truth of who God was in, in, and it is in my life. And so I, I came to faith at a very early age, at the age of seven. I professed my faith in Christ and asked Jesus to forgive me of my sins and I genuinely believed uh, at that point. I don't believe that that even though I had struggled with sin, more sin, you know, as as would be the case, more sin yeah. came after my conversion than before it. When mm -hmm. you're seven years old, you know, you can confess how bad you used to be. You know, I used to read books in bad light, and I broke my brother's crayon once, but now I'm all better. You know, there's not a lot of uh, rags to riches kind of testimony when it comes to that kind of conversion at an early age. And so sometimes there, there does tend to be doubt there because you're you're a worse sinner uh, for all practical purposes mm. after your conversion than you are before uh, when you come to faith at a very early age. And so that was one of the struggles that I really went through is kind of owning my faith as my own and coming to know, uh, understand that, 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 that faith is very personal. It's not just about what your family believes or what you've been taught because you happen to be raised in a Christian home, but to understand there are really good reasons for believing what we believe. There are really good reasons for trusting that the Bible is true and authoritative. 
And uh, I had to develop that understanding and that maturity over the course of time. And I was felt called to ministry when I was uh, a junior in high school, uh, going through the Experiencing God uh, material with Henry Blackaby. And I really felt that God was putting that calling on my life and ended up going to Hardin Simmons University, a Bible, uh, uh, Bible, um, getting a Bible degree or applied theology degree there, uh, going on to seminary at Southwestern, and then eventually, years later, going back to get my doctoral work there at New Orleans, and uh, have been in ministry since uh, I guess I was 19 years old, and um, have enjoyed being a part of the family of faith. I love my church home. I love my my uh, my, my upbringing in the Christian faith. Um, and I am a, a, the, a self-proclaimed theology geek. I love theology. I love studying theology, and that's something that's always been a big part of my life, which is the reason uh, I do the broadcasts that I do and write the books that I do is because that's kind of a, a, a passion for me uh, in my spare time. A lot of people do sports and other pastimes. My, my pastime and one of the joys that I have is just uh, studying the Bible and studying theology and uh, really pondering the deeper things of, of God and creation and our purpose and existence. And so that's a, a little short synopsis of, of me and, and my upbringing. Yeah, thank you. You, you know, you brought up your books. Um, what led you to write uh, your book, The Potter's Promise? And uh, also like to, to start your Soteri- Soteriology 101 podcast or channel? Well, I'll, yeah, I'll answer the second part of that first because it came first. The Soteriology podcast came first. Um, and I honestly wasn't setting out to do uh, a podcast necessarily. I, I, I was teaching as an adjunct professor at Dallas Baptist University, where my son is attending now. Um, at the time, he wasn't. But um, I was teaching theology there as an adjunct. And um, it came time to talk about the sociology aspect of the theology class. Mm-hmm. And I had been studying this in my own time. Uh, this had been a journey in my own life that I'd become a Calvinist back when I was about 19 years old, when I first went off to, to school and remained a Calvinist for about a decade of my life, pretty much all the way through my 20s. I, I was a Calvinist. Um, and I came out of that. And so uh, this is uh, years later while I was teaching in this, this particular class, I was no longer a Calvinist, and I was explaining some things about those doctrines that I had come to understand through my own studies to this class of students. Um, and it was like you lit a fire under their seats because all of a sudden they're all asking questions, there's debates going on in class, there's back and forth, and uh, we're very close to the village church where Matt Chandler is the pastor, and he's a well-known you know, Calvinistic pastor, as you know, and John Piper is very esteemed among many of the people who go, and rightly so. I I think Pastor Piper is a a great godly pastor and a good man. He also happens to be a Calvinist, and so a lot of people really respect him and really revere his his teachings. And so there was no small amount of dispute in in the class with regard to Calvinistic doctrine. Some kids in, in in the class had never heard of anything about it, and some of them were very Calvinistic and very staunch about the Calvinism and, and others very staunchly against it. And, and I was in the class trying to mediate and uh, uh, help people to, to, to work through these things. And I, and I realized very quickly it was a hot button topic. And in fact, I went back, it was one of those dual classes where it was, it was hybrid were partly online and partly in person. And so they were required to not only be there in person one class a week, but they were also required to sign on online and listen to online lectures and I told him, I said, no, well, guys, we've got to move on. We gotta, <laughs> we've got more to cover than sociology, so we've got to move on. But I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll put some of my extra work and my, my lectures, the things that I've discovered, on the online hybrid uh, mm-hmm. class. I'll record it for you. And you can, you know, it's not required, but you can watch that or you can get into it if you're interested. Well, it was interesting that um, on all my other lectures, on all the other topics, I might have one or two comments from the students, you know, on this lecture, which wasn't even required, it was watched by almost every single student, and there were hundreds upon hundreds of comments, back and forth discussion, uh, under these these uh, voluntary uh, lectures. And so it was just like this overwhelming response of the students wanting to get more information. And one of the students in the next class had mentioned to me, why don't you put those up on a podcast? And I was like, how do you do that? I don't even know what that what, how do you get on iTunes? I don't know. I don't, I had no idea. I'd, I'd heard of podcasts and I'd listened to a few here and there, but I had no idea how to publish things to podcast or all that. So 
I started doing a little research and figured out how up to load to Lipson, which would go to YouTube and, and to iTunes and all these other places. And just one thing led to another. And that's why it was called Sociology 101, because that was literally <laughs> the name of the little uh, thing that I put on it was this is this is a basics to sociology. I yeah. think one of the basics of sociology is you have to believe that God loves all people, mm. that he wants and genuinely desires the salvation of all people, that he um, has not created anyone for destruction, that he really has created everyone to be able to have a relationship with him and anyone can have a relationship with him. I think that's basics to sociology, to the understanding of salvation and the good news of the gospel. That's what the good news is all about, is God loves you and wants to have a relationship with you. He's provided a way for that. Um, and so uh, that, that's why it got titled that. I honestly thought the kids in that class would listen to it, and then maybe people who are looking for more information, I might download 10 you know, episodes or something, and 100 people might listen to it. That's honestly what I kind of anticipated for it once I put it up on iTunes. I, I never anticipated it would, it would become what it has become, which is just much larger pro platform where we're putting out, you know, weekly material uh, covering these doctrines and really trying to, with respect, ironically, hopefully answering many of the Calvinists who are consistently very prolific in their teachings with regard to promoting of what they call the doctrines of grace, i.e. tulip uh, theology of Calvinism. And we're, we're respectfully just pushing back and saying, here's why we disagree with you on those, those topics. And here's what we believe the Bible is actually teaching with regard to, the doctrine of salvation. Yeah. Well, what oh, about the, the book? Yeah, yes, the sir. book you ask about too. Yes, sir. Um, uh, yeah, the, the book came from really a, a debate that I had with Dr. James White, a pretty well-known Calvinistic apologist. Um, and in my preparations for that, along with my dissertation, which was all happening about the same time, uh, I was writing on the topic uh, because my dissertation is on the rise of Calvinism within the Southern Baptist Convention. And um, I was also preparing for a debate with James White about all about the same time in my life. And the material that I was gathering for all of those things kind of coalesced into what we know as the Potter's Promise. Now, those that know James White know he has a book called The Potter's Freedom, uh, which, of course, we, we don't deny that, that the Potter God has freedom. Um, but it, we, we think it's about his promise. He's, he's free to make any promise that he wants to make, and he's not obligated to save anyone, but he has made a promise. And that promise is that if you trust and believe in him, then you will be saved. And we believe anyone can do that. God hasn't withheld that ability from most of humanity so that they would be condemned for reasons beyond their control. That, that's not something we believe is, is taught in the pages of Scripture. And so one of the reasons we're pushing back against the Calvinistic premise is because we don't believe it's a foundational uh, foundationally a biblical premise. And so it, it's it's not a personal thing. Uh, we can love the Calvinist without uh, accepting his Calvinism. And so we're trying to, to, to push back on just saying we think Calvinists have misinterpreted some key texts like Romans 9, which the Potter's Promise spends a bulk of its, uh, chat, uh, its section on uh, defense and walking through Romans chapter 9 and in 10 and 11, uh, with regard to its meaning so as to understand it from a non-Calvinistic perspective. And so that's that's kind of the origin of how the Potter's Promise came about. Uh, and then not later, long after, a couple of years later, I wrote uh, God's Provision for All, which is, is more of a positive presentation instead of um, a polemic against Calvinism and, and really talking about my own journey out of Calvinism like the first book was. Uh, this is, didn't even mention Calvinism in the, the bulk of the book. It's, it's more of a positive presentation of God's provision his love for all, that God is a recognizably good God. We don't just call him good because we feel obligated to. We believe he's good because he demonstrates himself to be good through the person of Jesus Christ. And it's a very Christocentric theology, um, provisionism is, because it centers our doctrine of salvation on Christ. Um, and, and the whole question of what would Christ do? How, how, does, how does Christ treat his enemies? Okay, well, if Christ treats his enemies with love and provision, then we obviously should believe God does because God is reflected fully and perfectly through the person of Jesus Christ. So we do have a man-centered doctrine and the, the man is Jesus Christ that we center our doctrine upon. And, uh, and the way he revealed himself is the way I think we should understand our salvation. Yeah, that's great, man. Um, yeah, in, in many of my conversations with people who hold to Reformed theology, whether they're like five-point Calvinists, four-point Calvinists, or they're just saying, I'm, I don't know, I'm just a Reformed guy holding to Martin Luther or whatever, um, they seem to suggest, kind of like you're talking about a man-centered theology, that if you reject Reformed theology, then you have a 
poor view of God's sovereignty, which will almost, almost by definition lead you to uh, become an idolater, you know, lifting up man right. to that place. So um, how would you define God's sovereignty? And how would your de- definition differ from a typical Reformed understanding of, of it? Well, interestingly, um, the word sovereignty doesn't really appear in the Bible. <laughs> it's not, uh, it, it's a, a transliteration of the word, you know, you see Lord, Lord, for example. Yeah. Um, some of it's translated sovereign Lord in English because it's, it, Lord is the same thing. It's, it's so, the sovereign. The king is sovereign. It's ruler. Yeah. Uh, in other words, the word sovereign simply means the right to rule as the ruler pleases to rule. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a good working definition of sovereignty or lordship, if you will, or, or rulership as ruler would be seen in somewhere like Psalm 115.3, where it says uh, that the Lord sits in heavens and does as he pleases. Um, God is God. He is not beholden to anyone. He do, he's not ruled by anyone else above him. He's not obligated to do anything that he himself doesn't choose to do. In other words, he sets the standard. He's not, he's not controlled by some other standard that he himself uh, is, is ruled by. He is the standard. And so he is the ruler. He is the, 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 the sovereign. He is the king. And that's what it means. And nobody that I'm aware of that's worth his salt in theological circles would deny that he's sovereign. He is Lord. Mm-hmm. He is ruler. But what Calvinists mistakenly have done is they have taken that word and they have redefined it to mean that God deterministically controls everything. And that's not, uh, that's not the definition of the term. Um, the concept of God's providence is, is his right to rule or have providence over his creation the way he wants to. So you can't assume that God wants to rule his creation by meticulously, deterministically controlling their every thought, desire, and action through a divine sovereign decree that has to be established. You can't just assume it. And so what I often point to is the same chapter there, Psalm 115, verse 3, God sits in heavens and does as he pleases. But verse 16, if you read on down, says the heavenlies belong to the Father, but the earth he has given over to man. Mm-hmm. Well, that seems to imply that there is a sense of dominion that God has given to what I think Ephesians refers to the principalities, the, the authorities, the rulers in this dark world. There's a reason we pray, God, let your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Um, why? Because his will sometimes isn't done here on earth as it is in heaven. And we're praying for his kingdom to come, his will to be done, because we see sometimes Satan's will is being done. The, the rulers of darkness, the selfish wills of men are being done all around us. That's why we see the rape and the murders and the Holocaust and the, all the evil around us. It's not because God sovereignly and unchangeably decreed, planned, decided, brought about those sinful things. No, he's permitted man to act freely. And so as A.W. Tozer is uh, famously known for saying, God in his sovereign uh, decree did not decree which choice we'll make, but that we'd be free to make it. And that a God less than sovereign would be afraid to grant his creatures that kind of freedom. And so that's what we believe God has sovereignly chosen to do. He has sovereignly, providentially, if you will, chosen to allow creation to have a sense of dominion or freedom, responsibility, the ability to respond. And therefore, if they go right or if they go wrong, that is their responsibility. They have responded that way and they could have done otherwise and should have done otherwise. So if somebody rejects the gospel, in other words, they could have and should have accepted the gospel. Um, and that is the basic foundation of what really free will or responsibility is all about. The Calvinistic system undermines that, in my estimation, by, by insisting that mankind is only free insofar as they're doing what they want to do. But what they want is ultimately controlled by someone other than themselves, namely a divine decree. You're either born under Adam under the divine decree of this concept and idea of total inability, where you cannot respond positively even to God's appeals to be reconciled unless he's chosen you before you were ever born and changes your desires and your nature to make you want to come to him. And so uh, in my estimation, that gives people the the ultimate excuse for their unbelief. I was born unable to believe. Uh, I was born unchosen by my maker. I was born 
without the miracle of faith, because faith is a miracle given to some people and not others on Calvinism. And he didn't grant me that miracle. He, he didn't choose me. He didn't want me. And so I don't want him because he didn't first want me. Uh, he rejected me. And so by nature, I rejected him because that's the way I was created. I was created for damnation, as even John Calvin puts it. We reject that. We don't believe that the Bible teaches that there is such a person in the world called the reprobate, the, the non-elect, the people who ultimately God has rejected from eternity past for reasons unknown to us that he just doesn't want to save. That's just not a biblical concept in our estimation. That's why we're pushing back on it so vehemently. Yeah. Um, while you're talking, I was thinking a little bit about Derek Webb. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He was a one of the lead sure. singers from Cadence Call. Loved, loved so much of his music, you know, just incredible musician. Mm -hmm. But like, as he, as I'm sure you know, has like apostatized or however someone wants to put it, he, he rejects Christianity now, but he really articulates that reformed thinking very clearly, even in his like post-Christian work and interviews and just saying like, look, if, if God wants me to believe, he's got to make it happen if he wants me to believe again, because I can't do it yeah. without. And it's like, wow, that's, it's terrible, <laughs> you know? Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, we, we've played that interview several times on the broadcast, uh, the, and, and, it, and it is heartbreaking because he's ultimately blaming God for his unbelief. Yeah. He, he's saying, like Calvinists say, I'm like Lazarus in the grave. He even says that. Yeah. I'm dead. I'm, I'm six foot under the ground. If God wants to awaken me, he says, I want to be awakened. If it's true, I want to be called out of the grave. Yeah. I mean, if, if the Spirit is real and God is real, and it takes a miracle to make me believe, I hope I get that miracle, but I have no control over it. And so I don't know why Calvinists are trying to talk me into believing in their Calvinism. I, I don't have anything to do with it. It's all on God to do this for me. Yeah. And so what, what has he done? He's abandoned his responsibility. Mm -hmm. He's ultimately said, it's God's responsibility to cause me to believe. And if I have doubts and I'm not believing, that must be God's fault. Yeah. And it must be God's choosing. It must be, as I think his song so detrimentally concludes, um, Maybe it's all real and I'm not chosen. Mm -hmm. um, that that is that is his conclusion. Maybe yeah. this is all real, but I'm just not chosen, and right. that that is devastating to me. Yeah, yeah. I think something that's like, for, in just my opinion, something that's worse is like the Matthew seven people. If you're looking at Matthew seven, uh, like people who said to him, "Lord, Lord," uh, <laughs> and yet they were workers of iniquity that gets say, "Depart from me." It seems like those people really believed that they were followers. They really believed that they were saved. But from a Reformed position, God determined that they would believe that they were saved only to find out in the end that they weren't. And that seems like the most evil thing uh, anyone could do. You know, Right. Well, and if you believe that God is the type of God that could do that, yeah. i.e. decree somebody to think they're saved when they really aren't, then how do you know you're not one of those people? Right. How can you, how can you ever know right. that you're not one of the people being deceived by God into thinking you're really a follower when you're not? Yeah. Uh, and you, you couple that with the insecurities that many of us have already, mm. uh, especially those who have been abandoned by a parent at some point in their life, yeah. the fear of abandonment. And this gets into my, my wife's field of counseling. Mm -hmm. But when you're dealing with people who've gone through abandonment or insecurities like that, and you introduce to them doctrines like what Calvinism suggests, and they start thinking through these rationally, yeah. they start thinking, well, my parents abandoned me, and maybe subconsciously they're saying, probably God has too. And all of a sudden, um, you, you have created a dynamic that is detrimental to the mental health, spiritual health of an individual being taught doctrines that are destructive to the understanding of what it means to be loved by your creator mm. uh, and created for a purpose, a good purpose, yeah. not a, a purpose to be stepped on and destroyed for the glory of uh, a being that's just looking for glory. That's just out there seeking his, his, his glory, even if it means stepping on you to get it. Um, a lot of people have parents like that, uh, unfortunately, or f uh, people in their life like that who will use them and, uh, and abuse them for their own self-gratification. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you've got a doctrine that sounds very similar to what God's doing. He, he's willing to step on people, i.e. reprobate people, in order to make himself more glorious, yeah. in order to, for the praise of his own glory, as they'll put it. Mm -hmm. You can see how that can devastatingly affect people 
emotionally and spiritually. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the reasons, one of the many reasons, the main reason being we don't believe it's a biblical doctrine, but uh, it's another um, foundational reason as to why we are speaking so firmly against these kinds of doctrines. Well, you've, you've already been hitting on it, you know, but um, it seems like the doctrine of total depravity drives the other four main points of Calvinism. You've already been kind of talking about the doctrine of man, but, but like how would you explain the doctrine of man? Well, a lot of Calvinists wrongly uh, accuse me of not believing that men are, you know, that sinful, that bad. You know, Leighton has a poor anthropology, meaning he has a poor doctrine. I mean, men are so much worse than what Leighton thinks. And, the, and ironically, the opposite is true. Uh, much of what I am trying to argue for is the blameworthiness of man. In other words, mankind is blameworthy. Why? Because God loves them yeah. and they choose to reject his love. Man, I mean, just objectively, I mean, just pretend like Calvinism doesn't exist, Arminianism, all this, all the debate just doesn't exist. Objectively, just back away from that whole debate and ask yourself the question, which is worse? A man created by his creator to be hated, to be damned, to, to, to demonstrate the wrath of the creator who therefore rejects him and hates him and lives a life of sin versus the man over here who's actually loved by his creator, provided for by his creator, has the ability to come at any point and, and seek reconciliation and be in relationship with his creator, but chooses to walk away. Which of those people is really worse, objectively speaking? Clearly, the one who was loved and had every opportunity to come who chose not to is objectively a worse person than the person over here who was actually created for damnation and could not do otherwise because he was already hated by his maker in some sense of the word. Hey. Yeah. And, and this is what I'm arguing for. I'm actually, I, my, my anthropology actually has man as more blameworthy, as more sinful than what the Calvinistic system entails. Because what they're trying to say is ultimately you're born in a condition where you could not have done otherwise. You, you were born in a, with a, a nature, a fallen nature, by which you could only hate and reject the things of God. What better excuse is there in the world right. for hating and rejecting God than God created me by the sovereign decree without the ability to do anything other than to hate and reject him? It completely removes the concept and idea of human responsibility, any, any genuine sense of it that I can understand anyway. Um, and so th that's why we're pushing back against this. Now, a lot of Calvinists will go, well, it's because, they, it's, not, it's because they want to. They want to reject God. It's not, that, it's, not God's, it's not God's forcing them to. They want to. And then you just ask the question, well, why do they want to? Because God sovereignly decreed their wants, their desires to be such that they would only hate and reject God without the miracle of irresistible grace, this miracle of faith causing their nature to change by which they would love and accept him. That's just the claims of the system. Now, Calvinists will, many of them will balk at that and say, oh, well, you're, you're flattening it out or you're oversimplifying it or you don't understand it. But I, I would just challenge them. What specifically have I said that is contradictory to what John Calvin himself taught and what the, the major confessional statements of Calvinism teach with regard to the nature of man from birth. They are totally unable to love and accept him unless they were unconditionally elected. The you uh, atoned for limited atonement, which is only for the elect and irresistibly grace through effectual regeneration. Yeah. That, that is the basis of your system. That is the foundational point of your system. You're born unable to believe unless you were picked before you were born, you were atoned by atonement and you were irresistibly called. You have no control over that. You have absolutely no control over that. That is not a biblical doctrine. That, that, that is something introduced into the church much later, in my estimation. We have arguments to you know, obviously back that up that we go through in our broadcast. And so I, I just push back on the total depravity because it's not just about depravity. Of course, everyone sins. Uh, all are in bondage to sin. We're, we're, we're slaves to sin. We're enemies of God. All the things that Calvinists say about how bad people are is true, except... Mankind still has the ability to respond to God's appeals to be reconciled from that condition. Are you in bondage? Yes, but God sends a message to set those in bondage free. Um, are you dead in your sins and trespasses? Yes, but God sends you a life-giving truth by which you can either suppress or accept it so as to get new life. 
Bible says in John 20, 31, these things were written, speaking of the gospel, so that you may believe, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So how do you get new life? What does a dead man need to do? He needs to believe the life-giving truth so as to be given new life. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you refuse to come to me so that you may have life. What's his ordo salutis, the order of salvation? He says, you refuse to come to me so that you may have life. If Calvinism is true, he should have said, I have refused to give you life so that you would certainly come to me. Because on Calvinism, you're given new life so as to come. It's, it's regeneration preceding the coming on Calvinism. But that's not Jesus' order. Jesus says, you have refused to come to me so that you may have life. You come to Jesus in order to have life. So when the Calvinists go on and on about how dead we are, I just agree with them. I just say, yeah, but dead doesn't mean that you can't believe the life-giving truth. You can't just assume that's what the word dead means, because nowhere in the Scripture does it say, just because the prodigal was once dead, he was once lost, that he therefore can't humble himself and return home uh, and be reconciled. The concept of deadness is spiritual separation due to rebellion, not a moral incapacity to respond to God himself. And so Calvinists just have to be corrected about their presuppositions. And their presupposition is that spiritual deadness equals a moral incapacity to respond to even life-giving truth. And that's something that's not established in the Bible, as far as I can tell. Yeah, like um, the common analogy that I like to use is someone drowning like in a pool or, or in the ocean or something, and you've got a lifeguard that's going out to get them. And a lifeguard has been instructed, generally speaking, to not help someone until they quit until they give up because you don't want to punch the lifeguard and the lifeguard, you know, not be able to save you. So right. a, the person who decides to stop, stop trying and let the lifeguard save him is not going to, once he's on dry land, say, look what I did. Uh, I was so amazing. I saved myself. I mean, the credit isn't going to go to the person. It's going to go to the lifeguard, of course. So like we, I think what you're articulating is that we have the ability to say, I can't. And like, I can't save myself. And we have the ability to say, please save me, Jesus, without yeah. being regenerated. Yeah. And, and I think illustrations are helpful in these kinds of discussions. Um, and, and they're not obviously to supersede the scriptural revelation, but they, they're helping to explain what we believe the scriptures are teaching. And one of the illustrations I've used is like climbing a rope. Mm -hmm. if, if you had an eternally high rope, attached to heaven, so to speak, in this analogy. And, 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 and someone said, well, salvation is climbing the rope. And so how far are you going to get up that rope before eventually you can't go any higher? Because we all know work salvation doesn't work. You, you can't ever do enough. You can never work hard enough because it's an eternally high rope. No matter how high you climb, you're never going to reach the end because it's, it's, it's impossible. And so that's, that's kind of like work salvation where somebody's just climbing the rope, they're climbing the rope, they're climbing the rope, they're striving, they're, they're working it through their own righteousness, they're trying to attain heaven and relationship with God, and they keep failing. It, it, it just doesn't work. And what the good news is, the good news comes along and says, guess what? You can, you can stop trying. You can stop climbing. You can let go of that rope and trust in Christ to carry you. That's, that's, in other words, cease working. Give up the work and trust in Christ to carry you. That's the good news. And then you've got a subset of group of people, the Calvinists jump in and go, wait, 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 wait. Climbing the rope, that's a work. Hmm. Letting go of the rope, that's also a work hmm. because it's something you're doing. It's a decision you're making. And that's meritorious. That, that would be earning your salvation. If it's, if it's truly your decision to let go of the rope or not, then that would be meriting salvation. So you can't do that either. So not only can you not climb the rope in order to attain your righteousness, you also can't let go of the rope to have the righteousness of Christ bestowed upon you because that would be meriting salvation. That would be a work. So they, they are actually arguing ceasing work is actually a work. You know, giving up and letting go of the rope, that's actually a work in and of itself. Now, I understand their point, but it's not a biblical point. Paul never refers to faith as a work. He's always seen faith as like the, the prodigal son, he gives up working in the pigsty, humbles himself, which is the root word for humiliation. He humiliates himself by saying, I have done wrong. I, I, I'll, I'll be a slave in your house. He is giving up work. That merits nothing. The, 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 the prodigal son doesn't deserve anything on his journey home. He deserves, if anything, to be punished when he arrives. Instead, yeah. he receives mercy. God doesn't punish him. The father doesn't punish him, even though he deserves punishment. And then he gets grace. He gets unmerited favor. He gets the golden ring, the fatted calf, the party, 
the robe, the shoes. He gets, he gets all of this grace, even though he deserves punishment. He gets reward. That's, that, that's completely monergistically, if you will, the choice of the Father. The Father does not have to do any of those things on the basis of the Son's humiliating return home. And what the Calvinists have mistakenly done is, well, if the son decided on his own accord to come home, if he came to his senses on his own accord, if that was truly his response ability, then he's earned all of that. He's earned the golden calf. He's earned the golden ring. It has to be that the father somehow secretly caused the son to come home in order for the father to really get all the credit for it. And that's just not a biblical concept. I understand where they're coming from. But it's not a Bible thing. It's, it's, a, it's a deterministic philosophy added to the text much later. And that's what we're pushing back on. We're just saying this is not a biblical concept. This is not a biblically rooted doctrine in our estimation. Yeah. So, like, again, you're already hitting on, like, what's coming in the next question. But uh, maybe I could frame it from, like, a John 6 point of view. Like, uh, some pushback would be John 6. I can't remember the, the specific. It's like 44 or something. I don't remember. But, yeah, um, John but, 6, 44. Yeah, no one can come to the to the Father unless you know God draws him first. So, like, how would you explain the the mechanics behind how a person gets saved in light of that type of pushback using John six? Sure. Yeah. We, we, again, the point of contention is so important. I, I say that a lot on my broadcast. What is the actual point of contention? Because oftentimes people miss the point of contention and they think we're arguing something we're not arguing. So they'll say, "Well, God has to draw us. God has to initiate." And we're going, yeah, we agree with that. We just don't believe that God's initiation is only limited to a select few and irresistibly caused. We believe his initiation is for the world. This is what the good news of the gospel is all about, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son to the world. He provided salvation and the means of salvation to the world. And so, yes, he must do something. What must he do? (laughs) He must provide atonement through Christ. He must send the gospel through uh, inspired messengers and the Holy Spirit bring conviction to the world. All of these things are initiatives of God by which he draws, persuades, calls, uh, invites people to his banquet, so to speak. All, all analogies that we see throughout the scriptures. And so whenever the Calvinist says, you can't come unless you've been drawn, as if that support, un- support unique to Calvinism, then they're not understanding our point of contention. Of course you can't come unless you've been drawn. We just don't assume that the drawing is limited to a select few and irresistibly applied. We believe that gifts don't have to be given effectually in order for the giver to get full credit for giving them. Um, God can provide a gift for somebody, and they can walk away from it. They can refuse it. They can, they can resist it. Um, and that's the, that's the real point of contention. So when, when Calvinists read verses out of context as if they're supporting Calvinism, we just have to point out and say, well, that's not the point of contention. We agree. I mean, it even goes on to say in John chapter 12, 32, that when Christ is lifted up, he will draw all men to himself. Well, he's not drawing all men to himself when he's down from heaven. Uh, he is only revealing himself to a select few. Uh, he comes to his own, the Jewish people. Remember, the gospel hadn't been taken to the Gentiles at this point. Yeah. Uh, it's not until Paul is called to the, as an apostle to the Gentiles and Peter has his dream where the white sheet is let down that he goes to Cornelius' house and the gospel is then commissioned to go to, to the Gentile peoples as well. But when Jesus was here, he wasn't, he wasn't revealing these things to the Gentiles. Um, and, and, and he wasn't even really uh, revealing fully his identity to the Jews of that day. He was actually speaking to them in parabolic language, lest they understand who he was and believe in him. And so uh, the, the Bible is really clear that, that Jesus has a, a strategy when he's down from heaven to only reveal himself to those who've been given to him by the Father, those who've listened and learned from the Father would be given to the Son, that he would, uh, he would uh, uh, train them, disciple them, and commission them to go and spread the good news. Well, when does he commission them to go and start spreading the good news? Because before he's saying, don't tell anybody who I am yet. I mean, we see that several times throughout the Gospels where he he does a miracle and don't tell anybody about this yet. It's not the right time. Well, after he's raised up, after he ascends, what's the last thing he does? The Great Commission. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations. Go spread the good news. That's when he's drawing all people to himself. While he's down from heaven, he's not drawing all people to himself. Not yet. Uh, he's revealing himself to a select few so as to disciple and train them to go out and to spread the news so that all may believe 
and, and all may come. When you understand that strategy, when you understand that that's the context of the New Testament, then you'll understand certain verses that Calvinists pluck out of their context to support their theology. You'll understand it within that context. So you'll, you'll see a passage, for example, that says something like, thank you, Lord, that you have hidden these from the wise and learned, but revealed it to babes. Well, the Calvinist oftentimes takes a verse like that and say, oh, look, that's Calvinism. See, God's hiding it from the reprobates, and he's revealing it to his elect. And that's what that verse is about. No, it's about the fact that he has, that, that God, the Father, has not chosen the high and mighty Pharisees of that day to be his disciples. Who's he chosen? He's chosen the, the lowly babes, the blue-collar workers, the fishermen, the no-names, um, to be his disciples. And so what he's saying is, God, thank you that you've revealed these things, not to the wise and learned, not to the, the, the guys with the phylacteries and the prideful guys who think they've all got this together. You've revealed this truth of who I am to the babes, the nobodies, the weak and the lowly. And these are the ones through which I will build my church, the, 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 the rock on which I will build my church, the, 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 the Peters of the world who are poor <laughs> in spirit. Yeah, poor in spirit. Well, it's exactly right. So when you understand that context of what Jesus is talking about, you don't walk away with Calvinistic doctrine. You walk away with the context of what's happening in the New Testament and, and, and uh, what Jesus is accomplishing through the choice of his disciples and the apostles from among them to be commissioned to go and to carry the gospel by which all men will be drawn uh, to the Father. So um, based on someone we've been talking about, how like in order to do something good, you have to be regenerated first, even if that good thing is to believe. Um, uh, from a Calvinistic standpoint, you have to be regenerated first. Uh, in a discussion right. I was having recently um, with, with a... Uh, with a person that holds to Reformed theology, we, we kind of got into Old Testament believers. How we see many of them, though you see a lot of terrible stuff happening for sure, you see some good works as well. Like an example would be um, Ruth, a Moabite, choosing to stick with her mother-in-law, even though it doesn't really benefit her to do that. Um, so uh, with that, how are... Old Testament people, what's the mechanics behind an Old Testament person being like, quote unquote, saved? Because that's, that's something that this person was saying to me, like these, these people in the Old Testament were saved too. They regenerated as well. And I'm thinking like, how can a person be born from above without Jesus dying and rising again and giving the Holy Spirit to indwell them? And I was just having some, uh, some confusion about that. So I'm just curious yeah. how your how soteriology works with an Old Testament believer. Yeah, well, let me back up and kind of answer the first part of what you were talking about with regard to good. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, there's different senses in which the word good is used. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about can your good deeds earn or merit your salvation, we would all say no. Right. Okay. Doesn't mean you can't do good things. Right. You, uh, uh, for example, I often use this uh, as an example: is a an, somebody in the army may dive on the grenade to save his platoon. Now he may be a pagan who never even knows anything about, doesn't believe in God at all, but he may altruistically and, and lovingly self-sacrifice his life for his platoon. Now, is that a good thing? But by any standard, that's a good thing. Uh, even the Bible speaks of, uh, you know, if you ask for a fish, we give them a snake. If you then, though, are evil, know how to give good gifts. Right. Is he talking about meritorious gifts that would earn your salvation? No. Even throwing yourself on a grenade, even giving a good gift, that's not enough mm. to merit your salvation. No matter how many good things you do, even if you do them for a good motive. Yeah. Um, is it enough to, to earn your righteousness? Why? Because we all fall short. We, none of us ever always do the right thing. We all have a debt to pay because of if you've committed one sin, it's like you've broken them all, yeah. and therefore we are all under the 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 curse of sin. Um, and so, what Paul is speaking of, in specifically Romans three, is that no one's good, no not ones. Quoting from Psalm fourteen, um, which he's really talking about the fool who says in his heart there is no God. Yeah. Uh, the, the the distinction here is between the unbeliever and the believer. The unbeliever who says there is no God, there is no good within them. There is no merit within them. Nothing they do will merit their salvation. All of us uh, fall short. And so what's your only hope? 
believe in the righteousness of Christ. Yeah. You're not good enough, so therefore you need to trust in his goodness. And what the Calvinist is saying, you're not good enough, and therefore you can't trust in his goodness. Mm. And that's just not what the biblical author is trying to say. In, in one chapter, chapter three, he says, no one's righteous, no, not one. In the very next chapter, he says, Abraham was righteous. Mm-hmm. Is he contradicting himself? <laughs> no. He's talking about two different forms of righteousness. Yeah. He's talking about righteousness by the works of the law, which no one can attain, versus righteousness, which comes by grace through faith, mm-hmm. which is attainable by anyone and everyone throughout the course of human history. And this gets to your question with regard to Old Testament saints. Abraham believed. And it was credited to him as righteousness. Does that mean Abraham's faith merited his salvation? No. If it did, then why did Jesus need to come and die? Right. You just merit salvation when you believe. Belief has no value apart from the atoning sacrifice of Christ. God chooses in his grace to bestow the righteousness of Christ onto those who believe and trust in him. He doesn't have to do that. He's not obligated to do that. He chooses graciously to do that. And so Abraham was saved in the same way that you and I are, by grace, through faith. Now, he was saved, obviously, at a time prior to the coming of Christ and the atoning sacrifice, which you can read through several texts, like Romans 3, and I think it's in 1 Corinthians, where it talks about him overlooking the sins previously committed Mm. in view of the coming atonement. Um, and, And there are arguments about how that's played out and how that works. But in my estimation, Old Testament saints are saved in the exact same way that you and I are, by grace, through faith. Um, Though I think there is a distinction between the coming of the Spirit and the the concept and idea of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Um, Many will argue that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit doesn't come until after Pentecost, which is what a view I would hold to. And even many Reformed uh, scholars, Piper and others, I think, have argued that point that there's not a, a quote-unquote indwelling of the Spirit, which is really what I think regeneration is all about. But sometimes Calvinists will divide those things up into different categories depending on where they stand theologically with their particular ordo salutis. Um, different Calvinist, Calvinism is not a monolithic group, as right. uh, so I'll <laughs> explain. There are different kinds of Calvinists, and some yeah. Calvinists have a little different uh, explanation of how regeneration works and what it entails. Uh, and so uh, if you're talking about the indwelling of the Spirit, where the Spirit comes to indwell with, uh, within his people, I think that's unique to New Testament scholarship under the new covenant of grace. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I don't know if you're familiar, familiar with this podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mar- Mars Hill. It's fascinating. If you haven't seen it, it's, it's by Christianity Today. Really good. But um, it's talking wow. about uh, Mark Driscoll and uh, the culture that was set up around him that led to a lot of... Uh, terrible stuff. Any, anyway, in, in one of the recent episodes of that, um, it detailed how Driscoll's full embrace of Reformed theology at a certain point in his ministry led to a distinct shift in his treatment of people around him, even leading him to refer to some people in an audience he was speaking to as matchsticks. Like, none of this really matters because y'all are matchsticks. Some of y'all are matchsticks anyway. That kind of just dismissal of people. Um, do you think that a belief in unconditional election can lead to a dehumanization of others if taken to yes. its natural conclusions? Yeah. Yes, it can. That it, does that mean it always does? Right. No. Right. For example, I, I see no evidence of that in John Piper's life, right. for example, um, and, and many other Calvinistic friends that I would consider friends. I've not, I've not seen that evidenced in their lives. Um, I, I played years ago, I played a, a a section on broadcast where I read an article of, of somebody talking about how their super lapsarian kind of real high form of Calvinism affected their soul with regard to, now they were still a Calvinist. It was a Calvinistic article. In other words, they were a Calvinist, yeah. um, but they were, they were reflecting on John uh, MacArthur's teaching on the, the universal love of God, because he's written a book called, um, uh, it's something about love, the love of God, and he's defending the idea that God really does love everyone, even on Calvinism. Uh, we can get to the debate of how you define that form of love and, and my disagreement with, with him on that. But nevertheless, he's trying to curtail the tendency, as he refers to it, as, as those newly infatuated with Reformed doctrine of becoming so consistent within their Reformed doctrine that they actually teach that God hates 
the reprobate and and uh, and that people are matchsticks and and treating people with disrespect because of that theological framework. Uh, and so, uh, and there's a broadcast by John Piper where he actually addresses the mean spiritedness of some Calvinists um, and how they're known for uh, in, in some circles of being uh, mean and and not very forgiving and very gracious and and how he 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 really calls them out on that. And I would just say I appreciate that there are are some good Calvinistic brothers who are calling out their own. Uh, who would take things to seed at that level. Um, and and, and I, I want to be really clear in saying that I, I don't think that just because someone holds to uh, Calvinistic doctrines that they will necessarily become that way right. in, in the way they treat others. But there is a tendency for some to become that way, uh, especially if they're very intellectualistic, uh, very uh, become very dogmatic, um, in their in their ways of thinking, um, and, I, and I'll also say this, Phil. There, there's a there's a study. If you really look throughout the course of human history, that there there have been people who have been more deterministic in their philosophical worldview, whether atheistic, whether uh, from an Islam background, even Muslims. They're among the Muslim tradition. There are those who believe in God, uh, Allah, if you will. That's a predestinarian, deterministic Allah. And there are others that believe in free will, among Muslims even. Um, and so Christianity doesn't, is not alone in this debate uh, about how God's providence works. Um, and it's interesting when you study the course of human history and you look at those two different worldviews, more deterministic worldview versus the more free will, free responsibility worldview, that unfortunately, I mean, for the, for the Calvinist at least, that those who've held to a more predestinarian, deterministic philosophy, whether Christian or not, have tended to be more evil mm-hmm. <laughs> in the way they treat others. And I'm not trying to be mean. I, again, I'm not trying to reflect that on all Calvinists or all determinists for that matter. I'm just saying that should tell us something about the tendency of those who hold to a more deterministic mindset that it's it's the Muslims who hold the determinism that fly planes into buildings. The other side are the the, the softer forms of, of Islamic beliefs. Um, and the same with Christianity. The people who defended slavery, for example, um, mostly Presbyterian and Reformed type of, of, of churches. Now, is that exclusively true? No, some people come along, oh, I know there's this church and this church that was, that was free will church, and they are the ones who, they had slaves too. And the, as if that proves their point. I'm saying statistically, yeah. more, more people who are abolitionists were free willers uh, and believed in the doctrines of free will than, than the other side. Now, there's always exceptions to that rule, but generally speaking, uh, it was the Calvinist and the Presbyterians and those that were more dogmatic with regard to supporting slavery. And, and again, why do I point that out? Well, you're Doctrine and what you believe about God can affect what you believe about man and how you treat people. Um, this is reflected, I think, best back in the Reformation times, where you had Martin Luther and Zwingli and Calvin all practicing the same ills of the Catholic Church before them, mm-hmm. where they would kill dissenters. Uh, why? Because, you know, they may, they're probably not elect. You know, they're obviously yeah. not believing right doctrine. They're, they're reprobates there. I mean, get them off the face of the earth. Let's cleanse our world from these reprobates. Mm. Well, you have the Anabaptists and, and people like Balthazar Hubmeyer coming in, and, and they're the first ones to really teach religious liberty. And, and the reason they're teaching religious liberty, by their own teaching, they'll even say, because of what they believe about soteriology. Mm. Because they'll say things like, why are we trying to persuade men with sword and fire instead of with love and patience, because this is Jesus. Jesus treated men with love and patience, not with sword and fire. And we should, in the same way God has been patient with us, we should not try to, uh, try to end the person's life. We should try to prolong the unbeliever's life. Why? Because we want to give them more time. To, and he would read from you know, 2 Peter 3.9, for example, mm. that he's patient with you, longing for all. Uh, to come to repentance. So why wouldn't we want to be patient with someone? 
in order for them. And you don't want to burn them at the stake, try to force them to, to, to confess faith in God or to confess your doctrines. You want to be patient with them. Why? Because this is the example we have in Christ. And so you can see how what you believe about God and his longing for all to be saved, his provision for all to be saved, might affect how you treat all people um, in a practical way. And that's why I think it's important for us to understand what you believe about God will practically affect how you treat others, sometimes more obviously in some people than in others, um, and, and more dogmatically through some people than in others. And so I think it's an important point, though it, it shouldn't be taken so far as to try to condemn uh, anyone who, who adheres to Calvinism as they must be mean-spirited or they support slavery or any of those kinds of, of things. That's just obviously not the case. But there is a point to be made with regard to how we view our God and how we view his character and his intentions towards humanity. Yeah, that's good, man. Well, uh, man, I really appreciate you taking the time, Dr. Flowers, to uh, to do this interview. What What final word of advice or encouragement would you have for those listening, whether they maybe be believers or not believers, Calvinists, not Calvinists? Well, I, I would say that, you know, obviously this is a, a secondary matter. Um, you know, obviously the doctrines of predestination and election are very deep and, and, and many times gets into philosophy of God's omniscience and his divine, uh, you know, will and, and what he's doing behind the scenes and all these kinds of things that are oftentimes not revealed to us fully. And so I, I would say practice grace with those who disagree with you with regard to these issues. Uh, don't be so dogmatic that you end up doing something you regret and, and uh, trying so hard to, to win an argument that you lose the relationship. And instead, uh, be patient with those who disagree with you theologically. That doesn't mean you have to be namby-pamby and uh, you can't stand for something. But as they talk about it, you know, a velvet brick, uh, be, be solid, but 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 gracious, you know, love and, and, and stand firm, bring correction in love. Uh, and so when, when you're having these debates and these discussions with people, recognize that we all have errors in our doctrine. We all make mistakes uh, and, and, and be patient with people as they work through these doctrines for themselves and understand that just because somebody disagrees with you doesn't necessarily mean they have a nefarious intent like there's some sneaky snake that's, you know, in a dark-filled, smoke-filled room trying to deceive you and bring you down. Yeah. Um, it could be that they just misunderstand something. Yeah. And so be patient with them just as God has been patient with you and, and, and treat them with grace and love. And you're more likely to win them over and to persuade them through sweetness of the words, as the proverb says. And yeah. so I just encourage your listeners, as you engage with these discussions, obviously, there's more resources there at sociology101.com, and, and I welcome people to come and get the books and get the materials and those kinds of things to be able to, to articulate what you believe more, more clearly. But remember, always do so with the intention to show love and God's provision for all people. Lord, how long I call, there's no answer. Righteousness, oppress and evil prosper. Why do you strive and conflict fill all our days? Oh, my Lord, have for your great wonders. Oh, my God.
Been 